Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. You are about to listen to an original episode of Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of upcoming shows, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. After you finish the podcast, please take a moment to subscribe to it, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it sucks. Thank you for your support, and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. It's very unusual for me to be doing this show the way I'm doing this show, but this was a very unusual, unique, and special podcast with a guy I'm so excited to introduce you to in the format of our show, Industry Standard. And I'm talking about five-time NBA world champion and Hall of Famer Dennis Rodman. And as my mother once said, don't judge a book by its cover. And Dennis Rodman is one of the most special, unique, soft spoken, has such a great heart, wonderful personality, unique perspective on life and the world, and just had an amazing time with him. And it was an unusual thing because I kept trying to get him to do it and I couldn't get him to do it and I finally got him to agree. And at the last minute he told me, well, I can't come to the office, but I can do it in my friend's bar called the Class of 47 in Newport Beach. So if you don't know anything about Newport Beach and its relationship to Los Angeles, it's about an hour and a half away south going towards San Diego and Mexico. It's between Long Beach and San Diego. And get to this place, and it looks like a neighborhood bar, but right by the ocean and the docks. It's really, really special. And you walk in in this neighborhood bar, and I'm thinking class of 47, the person who owns this has to be close to 90. 
and I realize what's going on because every picture on the wall is a picture of John Wayne. And I asked the woman who was so nice there what that was all about. And she said that John Wayne owned this bar and the new owners kept it the way it was. And really, really wonderful aura of the place if you ever want to check it out. It's just a real neighborhood special place with a bar and some pool tables and just the basics. But has a great, great vibe. But not a really great place to do a podcast. There's music playing, there's people coming in and out, and I'm wondering how we're going to do this, and I realized that I shouldn't even worry about this, so it's going to be a little noisy, so the quality isn't going to be as great. The bottom line is, when I was swimming at Boston University, I never cared whether the pool was this pristine pool at Harvard, or if it was this pool that wasn't as nice at, let's say, Quinnipiac College. It didn't matter. What mattered was what you did with the facility you had. And so I thought to myself, I'm going to have a great time with Dennis Rodman. We're going to have an amazing, amazing conversation. And it's going to be fun. And the audience is going to be accepting of the fact, hey, there might be some noise. There might be some people talking. But we'll do the best we can. The reason why I'm in my office right now doing the cold open instead of in front of Dennis Rodman is... A little while before Dennis came, I got a text from his agent, Darren Prince, great guy, that I had 30 minutes. And you know me, 30 minutes, I mean, I don't even know what to do in 30 minutes. I can't do anything in 30 minutes. So I made the decision then and there that I was going to scrap my cold open, and I was just going to be in a situation where I interview him and make him feel as comfortable as possible because I had met him before once with my other son and had a great time for a short period of time and he signed over some jerseys to my sons and this time I brought my other son there and I thought let's just scrap the cold open there and I'll record it another time which is what I'm doing now and so that gave me more time to hang with Dennis more time for you guys to listen to what he had to say And I thought it was the best thing to do, and it all worked out perfectly, as you're going to see. But before I get into that, I want to let you guys know that Industry Standard has been invited to the prestigious, world-famous Montreal Just for Laughs Festival for the second time in three years. I'm going to be doing one podcast live Friday, July 29th at noon in Montreal at the Hyatt Regency. You can get tickets on their site. Ha 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 dot com. And I hope you can make it all you people up there in Montreal and around that area who are going there for the festival. Please come. The last one was amazing that I did with Kent Alterman, the president of Comedy Central. And this one will be even more amazing with a guest who I will let you know later. All right. What I want to share with you guys today is something very unique for this cold open. I'm not going to do it the way I normally do it. Because I thought to myself, what can I do that can sort of let people know how special this episode is in a way that relates to all of you? And I thought the only way to honor the audience as much as I really, really honored this interview and conversation and sitting down with Dennis was to look through all of the letters 
the FedExes, the long emails that I've gotten from people, the Facebook messages, and go through all of them and see if there was something that somebody wrote that related to what I felt, not just for myself, but also what Dennis Rodman probably felt along the way through his life and career. And I looked through everything. I've looked through thousands and thousands of letters, and I found one that really, really spoke to me. And from a really great actor and writer who is a big fan of the show, his name is Eric Biggers. And I want to read this to you again. I've never done this before, but this really spoke to me. It spoke to me because I really, really appreciated my time with Dennis Rodman. After hearing his story, I really appreciated my life and how lucky I feel to be in the position I'm in. And after it was all done and I shook his hand and my son got a signed ball and photos, I really, really felt the highest level of appreciation. And so without further ado, I want to read to you this letter, almost more like an essay that I got from Eric Biggers called Appreciation. I live in a world void of appreciation. I live in a world where excess equals success, where the pioneering technological wonders of things such as human flight and energy harnessing are barely given a passing glance, let alone appreciation. Clean water, warm beds, fire at our fingertips, all disregarded as simple privileges. Television, fucking television, is seen as a given. Everyday life is filled with the unappreciated. We drive to and from jobs we hate, in cars, buses, and trains. We lock the doors to our brick houses and take off our cotton clothes and leather shoes. We turn on the faucet so that running water flows into a tub so that we may bathe. We towel off, sit on the couch, and watch our flat-screen TVs, complete with remote controls and thousands of channels. We then walk along the carpet to our bedrooms and slip into the sheets that cover our mattresses, but not before turning out the light using the switch on the wall. Sometimes we make a phone call using a cell phone. Think about that for a minute. Cell phones are seen as run-of-the-mill, obvious things that are going to be there and should be there. Does anybody really think about what goes into a simple telephone call or text message and how it's sent? How complicated and elaborate the process is? Or hell, even how the damn phone itself was built? The fact that I, an average man in Indiana, can press a few buttons and instantly be connected to and talking with another person, almost regardless of their positioning on the globe, 
That still fascinates me. It also humbles me how very small I am. The same altruistic feeling is attained by staring at the stars and knowing, thanks again to so much dedication and work by history's great scientific and astrological minds, just how much distance is between us and them. How everything had to fall in perfect order so that I may be here, typing these words, saying these words, and spilling these thoughts. Do you realize how absolutely perfect, down to the smallest detail in DNA and atomic particles and human free will and elemental realm, everything had to come together in order for you and I to happen? Why don't more people appreciate this? We become so consumed by our own little lives that we become bigger than ourselves. We forget what is important and tend to become lost in what society has carved out for us. If we get too far from where we come from, wherever that is, we may never be able to find our way back. Not only is technology and the like unappreciated, but so is love and compassion and time and friendships. Speaking as someone who tries to appreciate and love as much as I can, I can say that it is hardly ever reciprocated. I cherish every moment I have with those I care most about and love because I don't know for sure that I'll ever see them again. It is such an alien concept to most that it, well, alienates those who implicate it. We are deemed the perpetual sideline squatters. This saddens me for the obvious reasons and is also a serious drain on the psyche but also because it adds to the endless loop of love and loss that we seem to perpetually delve into. We again become so entranced by what holds us back and what we don't have that we don't see what we have right in front of us. This is not aided in any way by my generation's infatuation with this whole fuck feelings movement or the feels. Whatever the hell soulless title you want to give, that which should fill you up with life and wonder. These feelings have been substituted with hatred, ego, bitterness, and fuck buddies. We spend so much time focusing on the negative that we fail to feel what makes us feel good. Most people complain that all they see on the news is bad news, terrorism, murder, and violence. They'll say that's what the government or so other seemingly in-controlled body wants us to see. The truth is, it's what you want to see. They would not air those images if they knew you wanted to see the good news. Nobody watches trash TV like Jerry Springer and Maury Povich to get the feels when a baby finds his daddy or a stripper confesses she's a man. We watch it to judge those people and subconsciously look down upon them, thanking our respective deity that we are nothing like those people, that we are somehow better than them. Maybe we're not, after all. I feel like Tom Hanks' character in Castaway, after he's rescued and sees the world a great deal differently than he used to, after spending days 
and shedding blood trying to build a fire on the island. He now has a lighter click whoosh after befriending a volleyball for four years. He now is talking to his old best friend with ice cubes in his glass, no less. After painstakingly hunting for crab and fish for so long and often failing, he now scoffs at the bright orange and friendly boiled king crab legs and fried salmon on the table. He also had the unfortunate experience of losing the love of his life. Twice. Toward the last few moments of the film, they're sitting in a car together after having just passionately kissed for the first time in the four years she thought he was dead. The look on her face says that she's ready to go with him and leave the life she pieced together after his death behind. He finally tells her that she has to go home, and so he drives her there, just up the driveway, in their old car, one last time. In that regard, he was lucky. He knew that was the last kiss, the last moment he'd ever have with her. The passion and heaviness is genuine, accurate, and felt we should all be so lucky. That's Hollywood. That's a fairy tale. Yes, it is. Sadly, on the bright side, we have the power to make it a reality. Cherish each other. Appreciate them and everything around you. People say we can't all be saints. Why the hell not? Here we go in three, two. We ain't one at a time in here. We're mass communicating. This show will have laughter. I got everybody pregnant with Barry Katz and semen. Infections caused by jacuzzi water. I'm not comfortable with the tone this is taking. Okay, here we go. Is there anything else I should know? You're on. What? Out of the air! People on Twitter have been asking for Barry Katz to come back a lot. If you're undeniable, you will not be denied. If you want to be successful in show business, you get yourself a Jew white manager like Barry Katz. Here we go. You fucking firing me up, Katz. Being a manager is just turning no's into yeses. Undeniable. Creating holy shit moments. I love this man. Barry Katz. Back in the house. 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 Let's do this. Before I get started, I want to talk to you about this amazing documentary that I worked on called I Killed JFK, which was unlike anything I'd ever done in my life. It's centered on a man who has been in prison for 30 years, who's the only person in history to have admitted to killing John F. Kennedy. And his story is unbelievably extraordinary. He started as a runner for the mob in Chicago when he was in his early 20s, and he was hired to drive two hitmen from that city around Dallas to help them get where they needed to go, and he ended up being the guy on the grassy knoll who took the fatal shot that killed John F. Kennedy. His story, the footage, the interviews, never been seen before. You can't find them anywhere except on this documentary. And I'm telling you, go to ikilljfk.com, look at the trailer, buy this documentary, it will blow you away. And in honor of everybody who does go and get a copy of this special, what I'm going to do is I'm going to choose one person randomly from that group of people, and I will invite them to a live podcast to be there in person with my guest 
be able to meet them, ask any questions they want. And if they're not from this area, if they're out of the country or out of state, I will Skype them in, I will FaceTime you in, and it'll be something you'll be privy to before anybody else gets to hear the podcast. So go to ikilljfk.com, pick up this documentary. I guarantee you, never been seen before, and it will blow you away. All right, welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. I'm very excited. This is one of my so excited times in my life because I get to be with a guy who's a huge inspiration for me, Dennis Rodman. And without further ado, I am going to give him the proper introduction. I'm sure when I'm done with this, he will have slipped into an entire coma and will not even be alive after this, but here it goes. Dennis Rodman was born in Trenton, New Jersey on May 1361. His mother moved the family to Dallas where she struggled to keep her children fed and clothed by taking almost any job that came her way. Curiously, Rodman didn't at first appear to be all that athletic or outwardly going. He was short for his age in high school. He was only 5'6 and was cut from his high school football team and later quit the basketball team because he wasn't getting enough playing time. After graduating high school in 79, Rodman's future appeared uncertain. He found work where he could, including a janitor position at the Dallas-Fort Worth airport. In his off time, though, he could be found at local basketball courts, where now he was 6'7", and he was a force as a basketball player. He caught the attention of the coaches of Cook County Junior College in Gainesville, Texas, who offered Rodman the chance to attend the school. And then he proved to be a dominant player for the program, was soon invited to enroll at Southeastern Oklahoma State. Rodman's on-the-court tenacity overwhelmed opponents, and during his three years at the school, he averaged close to 26 points and 16 rebounds per game. Seven years after graduating high school in 1986 NBA draft, the Detroit Pistons made Rodman, the 25-year-old at the time, a second-round pick. Unbelievable. His arrival helped usher in a new era of basketball for the Pistons, led by head coach Chuck Daly, whom Rodman came to adore, and point guard Isaiah Thomas. Detroit became one of the elite teams in the NBA and won the championship in 89 and again in 90. And Rodman was the huge reason why. A fierce defender and tenacious rebounder, he was selected to the 1990 NBA All-Star team and tapped as Defensive Player of the Year that same season. In 92, he won the first of seven consecutive rebounding crowns. Following the retirement of Daly, he was traded to the San Antonio Spurs and prior to the 96 season, traded again this time to the Chicago Bulls where he'd go on the team up with Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen to win three consecutive NBA titles with Phil Jackson. Following his tenure in Chicago, Robin signed with the Lakers for a brief run and then concluded his career with the Dallas Mavericks. And all Rodman, who was one of the league's dominant rebounders of all time, would finish with five NBA championships, two all-star appearances, named the league's top defensive player seven times, and in 2011 was inducted into the NBA Hall of Fame. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome my guest today, the man, the myth, the legend, 
an honor to meet you, my friend, Dennis Rodman. <laughs> what's up? What's up? I'm so excited. I have so many questions to ask you, but what we're going to do since our time is probably limited. Right. We're on location in this bar right, called yeah. the Class of 47, and there's people talking in the background. Was it John Wayne who John, owned the John, place? John Wayne. Wow. Right. There's pictures of John Wayne everywhere. everywhere right? so here we are. So what I'd love to do, because this is about the journey, and so many people do interviews with you about all these crazy things. I'm not interested in any of that stuff. Let other people do that stuff. I'm interested in your journey from humble beginnings to how you got where you were. So take us way back to where you grew up, what it was like for you, and what the situation was economically, and what your first inspiration was to play basketball. Growing up, um, coming from the... Uh Projects and um, going to you know prison, not prison, but jail, a few times. You know, living through the uh, trials and accolations of uh, living as a in a, in, a, in a poor neighborhood, and uh, then reaching to somewhat start up in, in college and in the NBA. But uh, but this it, it's you know like most NBA players back in the say seventies. Early '80s. I mean, we, when you struggle back then, because you know, when, you, when your mom's ma- um, when your mom's married, when she's not married and she has three jobs, and you don't get to see your mother, it's very tough for her, her and us to really survive in those uh, conditions. But uh, luckily for luckily for us, uh, we you know, when, once you adapted to those conditions, you pretty much can um, you know, you, you pretty much you pretty much be settled in the in the conditions. And for me, it was just more like, you know, five foot four, five foot five guy, you know, they had no direction. What were the conditions where you were living when you were younger, and how many people were in your family, and where was your father? Well, I mean, like most most men back in the 60s, you know, 60s, early 70s, I think they didn't have any criteria of being, you know, being a father or being a dad or something like that. You know, I, I was really used to it because I really didn't even think about having a dad because my mother was always there, you know. And um, So you never knew your dad? I never knew. I never knew my dad in the beginning. I just probably saw him when I was five years old. When I was five years old, so and I, I vaguely remember him then. You know, like I say, it's just it's like a blurred memory of, of who, who he was then. But I really didn't, really didn't think about it too much when I was growing up because I'm so used to not having a father. And the place that you actually live, could you describe the apartment that you guys lived in and how many kids were in the family and what the situation was? Well, like I said, you know, a lot of people can't relate to the situation living in, you know, like in, in the 60s, it was very tough in the 60s, you know, growing up with the racial tension, with the rioting and stuff like that, and the projects, you know, with the Martin Luther King issue, with the JFK issues and stuff like that, I mean, Living those conditions, man, it's, it's more like you get so used to living like that, and you don't know any other way but to live like that. So it's like I was very comfortable living like that. So during the rioting, during the rioting and stuff like that, when you see people getting shot, cut, stabbed, you name it, I saw it all, and I thought that was I thought that was normal. <laughs> living those conditions, you know, you look at you look at those things and say, wow, that's really bad. But to us, it was normal because we saw it every day, and uh, you saw it in, in the household, you saw it in the neighborhood, you saw it in the parks, you saw it, you name it. And I didn't know anything about right and wrong about white and black people. I never knew anything about that stuff. You know, I, you know, I just loved living and having a good time being a kid. How did you have a good time knowing that you could be <laughs> killed at any moment? Well, you know, I'm just saying when you adapt to something like that, when you adapt. 
And, uh, you know, a lot of kids today don't know how to adapt. <laughs> you know, they always, they're so used to having things given to them today. Then then it's more like, okay, great, whatever we can get, hey, let's, let's do it. You know, playing marbles, playing jacks, playing this, playing that, you know, hopscotch, white chalk on concrete. That was right. Kicking cans and <laughs> stuff like that. Racing popsicle sticks down the river, stuff like that. Those things were normal because we thought that was, like, great. You know, but uh, we didn't even thought about living out the box. So that was, that was the main thing about us. You know how people say, well, I was almost killed, but I used my sense of humor to save myself, or I almost did this, but I misdirected them there. Tell us the first time or the closest time you ever felt you could have been killed and how you diffused the situation and changed the outcome. Well, I can't say that I've always been killed. I mean, every day your life is in danger in that environment. Your life is in danger because you never know who's going to come around the corner. You never know who's going to shoot you. You never know who's going to be stabbed or something like that because you could be in a misfire, <laughs> you know, because it's because you're in the vicinity. And uh, it's just like I said, you know, it's just it's very difficult to really explain how life living like that lets you really go back and, and read the history and, and look at the history on TV. And just and that's how... You could say low middle class, low class people as we were in the ghetto lived. And like I said, most of the people in the ghetto, I mean, nine times out of ten, somebody got shot that day or somebody got stabbed that day. And most of the time when people got shot or stabbed, everybody would run over there too and just check it out who was it this time. What day of did this person get shot? Who's doing a drug deal? Who's doing this? Who's doing, I mean, it was just every day. It was not a day that didn't go by that somebody didn't get stabbed or shot. And that's luckily for us, you know, people don't understand how to create back then like they do today. And I think that if you had things that they've created today, how to finagle things about this or that, or try to put yourself involved with certain situations that you can actually get away with back then, you got away with it just because. Because, you know, if someone comes to stab you or shoot you, if you say something, I mean, you're next. <laughs> so that's what that's, that's the kind of environment that we lived in. Now, you seem like you're saying that you were immune to it, but clearly at one point in time, you had to run over to the scene and look down and notice that it might have been one of your best friends. When was the first time that something happened that it really crushed your heart and affected you as opposed to the immunity that you were feeling? I, I don't know how to explain it because when you see it so much, every day you say it probably been like 200 killings or 200 shootings that year. Literally every day somebody got stabbed. And we knew who was a drug dealer. We knew who was, you know, robbing people. We we knew it. We knew who was, you know, out, because people say, who was it? You know, it's like, you know, they knew who it was. That's why they go to certain apartments, certain places where people are at. And, you know, so it's like, it really didn't hit home because it's more like, you know, it's more like it hit home. My mother, she'll say, hey, you know, it could have been you guys. It could have been your sister. It could have been your cousin, you know, because my whole family, my cousin, my grandmother, everybody, we all lived in the same project. So we didn't have to go too far to uh, see relatives. So it's like, you know, about 15, 20, 25, 30 family members living in the same complex. And so whenever we did things together, it's more like we did it. And... Luckily for me, I think we only had one person in our family got shot and stabbed, so luckily for us. But clearly for us, we, we really wasn't involved with too much of the, of the drug, drug trafficking that was going on then. 
we were just pretty much going outside playing football, baseball, anything that we can put our hands on. That's what we pretty much was doing every day. And all the kids would go inside the uh, complex and just play together. But but you know when you hear when you hear a shot, everybody said, "Oh, who got shot today?" <laughs> so that was pretty much like that. That's how we looked at it. You knew the difference between right and wrong, though. Oh yeah. So. What was the first thing you started doing that you got in trouble for that was wrong? Well, you didn't really get in trouble like that because I really didn't do anything that's really bad, bad. But you said you went to jail a couple of times. Oh, that was like, that's when I grew up. Yeah, so it's like, no, I didn't do anything bad. You know, stole money from my mother or go break into a school and ride skateboard and bicycle, stuff like that. We really didn't do anything like steal like automobiles or you know, radios or anything like that. We never did anything like that. It was more like we just did the most simple things in the world that we could actually get out of. And then, like I said, once you got older, once we got older, it got a little more intense. How about you know, stealing and, and trying to <laughs> try to maneuver how to get away with it, stuff like that. When you're teenagers, but when, when you start doing stuff like that back then, and we're so stupid about bull crap that we, okay, great, we could just break into something. Okay, great, we'll, we'll take this, we'll take this, take that. And this is how naive we were that the fact that we didn't know they had cameras in the building. <laughs> so that's how naive we were. <laughs> so we think we can away with we got away with it. Oh my God, you know, this is great. Let's, let's go do it again, stuff like that. We thought it was, okay, this is cool to do this. As long as we don't hurt nobody or kill somebody or stab somebody. We thought just going and breaking in here, maybe stealing something that's worth like you know, 20, 50 bucks or something like that, and then nobody would miss it. But surely that we didn't know, yeah, they did. <laughs> so it's like, okay, great. And then, you know, you think you got away with the next thing you know, two weeks later, you got a knock on your door, hit some cops. <laughs> and then you knew what's up, you know, because they're there for a reason to come and get you and put you in jail. And my mother didn't stop it at all. I mean, she's, when she saw me go to jail, she said, well, see, whenever. That's how it was right there. When people go to jail, see you whenever. So. It's, it was like I said. It, it, for me, it was a you know looking back now, it was a great, great educational thing for me. There's all different kinds of parents, and when parents work a lot, there's the parents that tell their children they love them when they put them to bed. There's the parents that never tell their children that they love them, but they know that they love them. Mm-hmm. Where was the spectrum of where your mother fell in? Was she an affectionate woman towards you? Was she tell you that she loved you, or you oh, just no, she, knew that she loved you? Oh no, she she, didn't, she never told us anything about that stuff. She like never that. said I love you, Dennis. Oh no, not one time. No, not one time. I mean, my sisters that take the same story. No, she never did because she had no time to do it because she was always under stress, working so much, you know, three jobs a day. We didn't know anything about love or caring and stuff like that. We just knew that we, as three kids, we always hung around with each other and took care of each other because we was, uh, you know what I would say, abandoned kids living with our mother, but it was more like that's the only way we knew how to live or just take care of each other because we knew my mom was gone somewhere. We, she was doing her thing, working and whatever, and no, she never said that she loved us. Which, I really don't look at it like she was a bad mother. I mean, she had to do what she had to do, so we just we just did our thing. And so going forward in your life... Hey everybody, let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success. It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, 
Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business. I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Did you become like your mother, like in your relationships? Were you the kind of guy who couldn't tell a person that you loved them? Or did you do just the opposite of your mother and you became very affectionate and tell women that you love them and people in your life you love them? No, I think that I'm more like my mother. <laughs> You're more like your mother. Oh, yeah. I catch myself every day doing that. You know, I say, oh, my God, I'm just like my damn mother, right? Because, you know, it's like, I, it's hard. For, I can say, you know, I, I love my kids, yes. I love my kids. But Do you tell them you love them? Oh, yeah. So them. you are different then. Well, it's not like, you know, like, run and grab and say, I love you. It's more like, I love you. We hope you guys doing well. <laughs> that kind of stuff. That kind of love, you know. But I think that, you know, back then it was like, People didn't really know how to do that. We didn't understand how to go hug somebody and give them emotional affection. I never saw that. Well, I lived that. <laughs> no one did that. No one in the projects told their kids they loved them. I didn't hear it. I mean, I didn't see it, you know, because, you know, you see, like I said, we'd go out there and be playing in, in, the, uh, in the playground and stuff like that. And you see the mother, father, they all over there smoking and whatever and stuff like that. But it was like that every day. It was like, you know, we, you know, come in, run it and hug your mother or father. No. It was more like, okay, guys, time to eat. That was it. <laughs> that was pretty much it right there. Wow, that's intense. So you're in high school and you're five foot six, which is hard for me to imagine because my kids are five foot two and they're in fifth and sixth grade. So you're five foot six. You're not really that athletic, apparently. You're not outgoing. And do you have dreams in high school or you have visions like, hey, I want to do this for a living? Or do you just go through and say, I just want to get out of this town? No, man, you don't have no damn goals, man. I mean, like I say, living living royally like that, you don't have any goals. I mean, what are you going to shoot for? I mean, you can't shoot like, okay, great, I'm going to go and make $100,000. Hell no. <laughs> you ain't doing that. So going to high school, I was like five foot four. My sister was like six foot one. My other sister was six foot, and it was all American high school and stuff like that. So I pretty much basically lived vicariously through them. And I'm more like I played football, and I was pretty good in football at five foot four. But other than that, I had no aspiration, inspiration about anything. Because I just, I just wanted to just go through life just being an average you know, human being. That was my whole goal right there, just being an average, average guy. That's it. That's the average guy. You know, I'm probably have kids, probably living in the middle of the low class. Uh, community so that was basically my whole thing that's what i wanted to do all right so take me through the process of what happens to you step by step so you're graduating high school presumably and now it's like get a job and get out of this apartment 
or help me out or whatever it is. <laughs> and so you take all these odd jobs. Well, take us through what happened in your body, in your mind, in your heart that changed that philosophy. Like, I just want a regular job and maybe raise kids in Trenton to I am going to have a work ethic. I'm going to be a professional athlete. I have a vision. I could do this. When do you see the first glimpse that, holy shit, I think, I think I could do this? Well, like I said, you don't have any any goals or any um, any direction when you come in when you go on living in that in that environment. When I was 18 years old, let's see, I pretty much been in jail like 15, 20 times already. You were in jail 15 or 20 times oh, at 18. Oh yeah. What was the worst offense you had? And <laughs> that wasn't even, even that bad. <laughs> it's just more like going to jail for like two or three days, come out, maybe a month later go back to jail. But for but, like what, stealing a bicycle or? No, just sitting stuff in the neighborhood. Yeah. Just sitting stuff in the neighborhood, maybe go down three or four miles, go, go take something here and there, maybe go to a store and steal like chips and bubble gum and stuff like that. So, but you go to jail for those stuff back then, you went to jail for that. And left high school, my mother kicked me out at uh, 18. So. so she kicked you out. You have no money in your pocket. Oh, no, nothing. She kicks you out. You don't have a place to stay. Right. Where do you stay and how do you survive? You just do what comes natural. Did you sleep on the street at you all? You sleep on the street. You so you're homeless street. for a little you bit. You sleep in the, you know, people's backyards. I used to sleep in my friends' houses and stuff like that. And, and you know, just you walk through the night and try to find a place to, you know, put your head down or something like that. But like I said, it was so, we were so used to doing this thing, it, it felt so natural doing it. And it's more like, the only thing you felt so bad about, you, you know, you probably have a little hatred from your mother because she, she actually threw you out. <laughs> threw you out and, uh, and I, I went through a period when I said, oh, you know, screw her, screw her, you know, but, but the more I, I lived in the street, the more I understood why I became like, a nobody as far as like didn't want to work. I didn't want to work and do anything. I just wanted to stay home, maybe clean the house or, you know, to do something to help my mother around the house. But I didn't realize the fact that she needed help as far as money to pay the rent and get the food, or take care of the car, or take care of us and stuff but like that. But she never said, Dennis, I need you to get a job and give me some money for the rent. She never said that. Oh, she said it a lot. Oh, she did. <laughs> I just didn't pay no attention to it. Got it. And so then one day she said, you got to go now. And I said, all right, great. And I pretty much thought it was like a joke. I said, go where? <laughs> you know, go where? She said, no, you got to leave the house. And once you leave, it, don't ever come back. She said, don't ever come back. Oh, absolutely. And I said, okay. So I thought it was a joke. I thought she'll come back in a couple of days or a week or whatever. Come, you know, find me. I'm probably in the neighborhood somewhere living. But she never did. I, took, I think it took like, I think it took like maybe two years. Two years. Two years when she actually came back and said, Dennis, I'll let you come back home, but you got to go get a job. And by that time, I was like six, seven. So you went from five foot four or five foot six to six, seven in a span of a couple of years? Yeah, a couple of years. Then what tripped me out when I went back to the house, I think it was like six foot when I went back to the house. And then and we refrigerated about like, I don't know, about five foot, you know, five foot 11 inches, you know, whatever, feet, yeah. whatever. And every day I used to walk in the kitchen and every day I was like, <laughs> wait a minute, because I'm like, I'm refrigerated right here now. So it's like, wait a minute, I'm growing, right? And, then, and I'm wondering why my pants are so so short, you know, <laughs> they was going on <laughs> and my shoes didn't fit and all stuff like that. I'm like, wait a minute. And my sister said, dude, you're growing. 
And then once I got the same size as my sister, six foot one, I said, wow, I am growing, huh? So I just started, then all of a sudden, it started to click in. I said, wow. My sister said, why don't you go play some basketball with us sometime? But I never played basketball. Damn, I played football, you know, football. And your sisters were playing basketball. Did they get a scholarship to college? Yeah, they got a scholarship at uh, Louisiana Tech and Stephen F. Austin. Got it. And, um, yeah, they used to say, come, come to the gym with us all the time. You know, I, I went to the gym, but I was playing football in the, in the, in the park. And, but I never went to the gym to play basketball at all. So one day I went there. So the first time you're telling me you pick up a basketball and actually play is with your sisters, and you're probably somewhere around 19 or 20? I'm about 20 and a half, 21. 20 or 21 is the first time you actually played basketball. That's basketball. I mean, like, you know, you know the 5 on 5. Three on three or four on four, and you know, actually that t- type of game, yeah. All right, so you go out with your sisters that first time. Try to remember back that first time you go to the gym with them. At the end, when you're walking home, are you saying to yourself, "Hmm, I think I could do this"? Not really, because I didn't, I just thought it was like more like uh, people just go to the gym, play basketball, have a good time, and meet up with each other every day. You know, drink some Kool-Aid or drink some, you know, whatever we can get our mouths on. And they'll just hang out all day long, five, six hours a day. I mean, playing football, basketball, whatever we get, where we got balls with. And that was it. And every day I walk out the house and I would have this, have this little routine I do every day. I go one by the fence right there. By the fence is about yay high. I'd say about four foot. I said, I'll jump this fence every day. You know, I take a running start the whole time and just clear the fence every day. That was my routine every day. With not touching the fence, Mm-mm. a four-foot fence. That's what I got. So you had a four-foot vertical leap. When you step up, step up, and just jump over, you know, something like that. So it was more like that. You know, just more like an activity because we all, all the kids did it. You know, everybody did it when they just run, run, jump over the fence and stuff like that. We just run, we run to the gym every day. And, and for me, the first one to play basketball, my sisters. They thought I played basketball all my life because I picked it up so quick. You know, I didn't know how to play organized basketball, but I knew how to shoot and, you know, I didn't know how to dunk. But then once, you know, once I started going every day and I started to grow 6'2", 6'3", 6'4", then I started learning how to dunk. (laughs) So when do you realize that maybe, just maybe, you could go to college and get a scholarship for basketball? Is it when somebody approaches you, or do you have in your mind, I can get out of this place through basketball? Never thought that. Never? Never thought that. I never thought that. I, I just thought, you know, I was such a big cowboy fan, football fan. I, I just thought that just going to play basketball with my friends, that was it. Because in Texas, obviously, the Friday night oh, lights every Friday is the high school football. Well, it wasn't it played this. It wasn't called Friday night back then. you talking about now. Yeah. <laughs> we're talking about, about back then. we just see a football game and have a good time and join up with your friends and, and just go blast the music all night. But, yeah, when I realized that I could actually play, people started saying, dude, you can play basketball. You know, I, wow, who taught you how to play basketball? I said, no one. And this girl came from from this college in uh, Texas and uh, hey would you like to go to you know the college and play basketball for this team Cook County I said I don't care whatever I thought it was a joke right so one day I went to the gym and the guy watched me and said dude you can actually play ball you can play ball my 6-4 the next thing you know you know a couple months go by and stuff like that all of a sudden I was like 6-8 
And I was six, eight, six months, I was like, grew another four inches. And then all of a sudden now, I got people coming out the woodworks who want me to go play college basketball, especially people that was in the gym that was playing for TCU, SMU, all over the country. They said, you should go play. And I was like, all right, great. So I went to go play at Cook County Junior College. And uh, this coach came and got me and said, would you like to have a scholarship? And I said, I don't, you know, me, I'm just, I don't care. I don't care. I thought it was like a joke. You know, I just started, I didn't even play along with it. I just more like, okay, I, I'll play. And um, and basically, that's how, that's how I learned when I could actually maybe get out of um, this poverty. You felt that vision at Cook or when you went to southeastern Oklahoma State? Well, it was more like the fact that when I went to Cook, I didn't know how to play organized basketball until I went there because they taught me how to do it. And I really didn't, didn't really go to class or anything like that because I didn't know how to do stuff like that, you know, in that, in that environment. So I flunked out the first semester and then I went back home and then, see, went back home and I went back to live with my mother. She moved to another apartment and then all of a sudden she kicked me out again. <laughs> <laughs> you got kicked out twice. twice. Oh, yeah, Why did she kick you out the second time? I think it's more like she felt that I didn't care about her for her because I didn't want, I didn't support her as far as money was. God. And she just looked at us, okay, great, you're going to be a bomb all your life. Don't be a bomb here. Leave. So she took all my clothes and put them outside. So it's like, all right, she's serious this time. So I went back in the streets again, back in the streets and go. You're homeless again. Homeless again. So I went back to the streets and lived with my friends. I lived with my friends every other day. Then one day a guy said, Dennis, would you like to come play on that basketball team? I said, okay, great. So every day I would live door to door, house to house or whatever, and, and go play this tournament every day for like a week. And then the last game, I guess I've had like 30 points, 20 or something rebounds and something like that. I won the MVP. So after I won the MVP, I went and sat on the curve and I'm like, didn't know where I was going. You know, I just just trying to figure out which direction I was going to go left or right to somebody's house. So I had a trophy about this tall, but this tall sitting on the, on the curve like this, trying to wonder, you know, literally, which direction am I going to go today? And then I say, you know, here come my mother. <laughs> my mother walks up out the blue. And gives me a card, and the card had like 20 bucks in it. It said, Happy birthday. And she walked away. That's uh, pretty much that's, that's why I saw her for like another two months. So I was, that shocked me. The fact that's the first time she ever seen me play basketball. Did you know she was going to come watch you? Nope. I didn't know she was there. But somebody told her that I was playing basketball, and she came with her boyfriend and whatever. And she walked up right here and said, Here, happy birthday, and kept walking. Written inside, did it say, Love mom? Oh, no. We just said happy birthday. That was it. She felt bad, so she gave me 20 bucks. And I said back then, 20 bucks in 1981, 82. That was like a, that was like a thousand dollars. You know, that was like ten thousand dollars back then in the ghetto. I mean, the projects. You can go buy your, you know, bicycle for that back then. You know, 20 bucks. So I just looked at it like that, and she came and got me again. She said, "Come on, come back here. You know, I want you. Once you don't live in the streets, I think you could play basketball and stuff like that." This is just amazing. You just painted the picture where you're on the curb. You got the most valuable trophy. Right. And you don't have a place to sleep. You're on a curb. And then your mom comes out of nowhere, out of nowhere. who never showed you any emotion, never gave you a card in your life, nope. never gave you probably money in her life. No, <laughs> no not like that.
It's just uh, amazing. Never, never, never had this stuff, but I guess we didn't care. We didn't care because we knew that we were going to get fed every day. We knew that we had food stamps. We knew that we had, like, you know, Thanksgiving, we had, like, Hornet's hands. We didn't have a turkey. <laughs> it was like Hornet's hands, like this, this small, this small. Everybody had one. Those things were there. It was now cool. you go to Thanksgiving, go to Subway, they have a turkey soap. <laughs> well, a little more than that, but <laughs> so, yeah. So, how do you get to the point where you're off the streets and then you go to a bigger school, Southeastern Oklahoma State? And why Southeastern Oklahoma State? That was an accident. I told everyone, I said, that was an accident because when I went back home, you know, I was saying I was going to get a job. Then my mother said, if you're not going to get a job, why don't you go to the damn Army or the Navy or something? I was like, no, no. <laughs> so I said, I ain't going, no. And I actually went down to the recruiting station to sign up for the Army. And thank God, you know, I didn't take that physical. <laughs> thank God I go back, you know, because if I would have went back, I'd probably be in the Army at that time. But uh, and but I think I work for the admiral. Oh <laughs> well, yeah, the admiral. Yeah. So yeah, and it's told I, you know one day I was at home. I was just going actually going to the gym, and got a knock on the door. And these two white guys were standing in front of me at the door, and they said, well, "Yes, it's like Dennis Rodman here." I said, "Who's who's calling? I mean, who's who's asking for him?" He said, well, "Lon Richman and Jack Hayden." I agree, cool. He said, you're Dennis Rodman? I said, yeah. He said, we're coaches from Southeastern Oklahoma State in Oklahoma. I said, I agree. He said, we'd like for you to come, you know, come down and do a tryout in Oklahoma. I said, all right, great, cool. And um, I, I really didn't want to go. As you know, most Americans with geography, we think Central America is somewhere in the Midwest. So how far was Southeastern Oklahoma State from where you were living? How many miles? I don't know, 80 miles. Got it. So you could take a bus there or they could send a car for you. Yeah. So, you know, they, you know, had a van, had a school van. They came pick me up. So I went down to, I went down to Oklahoma and back then racial, racial tension was really high, especially in that town. This is like in the early eighties. It's like 80, 83 when I went there and I went down to this, this town, I think this town was like 16,000 people, all white. But I went down and tried. I went down and tried out. I went down and tried out, and uh, and the guy said, "Wow, wait a minute, hold on. You could actually play, huh?" And I did everything right. You know, I did everything. Up. I rebound. I ran the floor. I jumped. I dunked and did stuff like that. And the guy said, "Do you want to come to school here?" I said, uh, "Yep." And, uh, and right then, I said, "Wait a minute." And I said, "Wait a minute. Wow, I can actually play basketball, huh?" So I signed a contract intent, you know. The gave, letter of intent, yeah. Yeah, I can letter of intent, and they gave me a three-year scholarship. And then I didn't know what that was, and they said, we gave you three years. So you were coming in, you'd already done one year at the other school, and you had three years left of eligibility in college? Well, I said I had four, because I really didn't actually go there. I mean, I actually went there like three, four months, and I flunked out of that college, so basically I, I had four years. And um, I signed a letter of intent, and so I think... I went back. No, and I actually stayed there for for a basketball camp. And I didn't, I don't know what to do. I mean, said, so, "Well, you can be for a basketball camp, and it's all little white kids running around, you know, There's like 400, 500 white kids." So I said, "Okay, I went to camp." And he said, "Okay, you'll be here for a week. You're staying in dorms and stuff." So I agreed. So I had no money, so he gave me some money, like 50 bucks for the week, for the week. And so I said, "I stayed." So I stayed for the basketball camp, and uh, that's when I met that little kid. Brian Rich. Tell us about Brian Rich. 
when I first met him, you know, it was just like a, I was in, we was in there doing a, you know, the, the skill training for the kids and stuff like that. Now I'm just trying to just trying to pass time because I don't know what the hell to do, you know, just just helping out. So you get you know, next thing you know, you hear this beating on the door, right? Somebody just beating, 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 and one of the counselors went over and opened the door, and it's this little white kid, like ten years old, right? Crying and kicking him, his mom and dad were literally picking him up and throwing him in the gym. So they actually threw him in the gym and he rolled on the ground. The next thing you know, he runs out the gym. And next thing you know, they can't, um, grab him again, throw him back in the gym. And then he, and he did it one more time. So this time when he when he, uh, when he was in the gym, he sat down. I mean, it was insane, dude. I, said, I just said, oh, you know, I feel so bad for the kid. I said, hey, great. I go over there. And everybody went over there to try to talk to him, you know, try to calm him down. I said, hey, dude, what's up, man? How you doing, man? Everything's cool? Well, he said, he said, oh, fuck you, like, wait a minute. I say, well, I'm like, okay, all right, I'm tired of me to go. You know, and he used that N-word, like, damn, okay. <laughs> so, okay, he's fine. I went back over there, and I said, I'm just trying to help you out, man, whatever, man. Whatever you want to do, something that's cool, it's cool. So, it's like two hours passed by, and all of a sudden, that kid that just going crazy nuts, all of a sudden, he walks up to me. And he said, I said, you ready to play basketball now, man? You want to join us and have a good time? I said, whatever. He started playing ball. And he got into it a little bit, but he was he was still you know, perturbed and upset because his mom and dad threw him in the gym. Then when the camp was over, we walked up to the other gym. So I went up there to you know, shoot around, playing around by myself, having a good time. And say about 30 or 45 minutes into what I'm doing, just shooting around by myself. Guess who walks to that door? That white kid. Now that kid that just, I mean, that kid that's just sitting there, I'm like, oh my God, screw you, N-word, screw you, screw you. He's in the, he's right there at the door right there, just sitting there with his basketball. I say, hey, what's up, man? How you doing? He say, you waiting for your dad or mom or whoever's picking you up? She said, no, I want to come play ball with you. I'm like, really? You know, I'm like, I actually turn around and say, and this is the white kid that called me the N-word. <laughs> this is white kid asked me to play basketball. And I'm like, oh, my God. I said, all right, great. I said, all right, come on, man. Come on. We just shoot around, shoot around, shoot around. So that went off for like, I said, I right, do. Take care. He went, his dad came picked him up. Take care of him. So next thing you know, every day, every day from that day on, it's like Monday through Friday, every day this kid would come literally right in the gym and come sit beside me. Every day, I mean, we just knew each other for like a couple hours, three hours now. I guess he actually started to like me because I'm like, I'm like, what, I'm naive too. I'm like a naive 22-year-old kid, you know, just trying to, you know, be a kid. So every day he'll come and sit beside me every day. He said, what are we doing today? I'm like, what are we doing? <laughs> I said, what are we doing? <laughs> Yesterday we were doing shit. <laughs> I said, so I said, well, I said, wait, you go, he'll come right here with smiles. and like, what are we doing today with, with basketball? He said, I, I said, we're going to play some games today. He said, I want to be on your team. I said, all right, I'm going to be on my team. So every day, you'll come play basketball on my team. And we win every day. And I mean, it was just how the transformation came about from calling me the N-word to like, hey, buddy, you know, stuff like that. And I'm like trying to, be, trying to like keep it at a balance. I'm trying to keep it at a balance. Oh, I know this kid just like me because I'm black. You transformed him. Uh, well, I wouldn't say that because he didn't know me. He just knew that he thought I was more like a a cartoon character because he never saw black people up close. What ended up <laughs> happening to him? No, what happened to him, I think the fact that when, when we got to be really, really, we actually got close in that week, me and him, because every day we played around, went to the store, got some Slurpees, 
and just sit around and start talking basketball, maybe throw the football around the field, stuff like that. And he would go, he would tell me stories. It's like, you know, I went home and told my mother, I have this black friend. <laughs> so every day he come tell me the story. He said, I got this black friend that I, I, I really like, Mom. I really like this black friend, man. He never said I was a six foot eight, 22 year old basketball player. You know, he said, this black friend. Did he bring you home to his mom? <laughs> no, she, well, now, this, is, this is like after all this stuff like this. So he never told his mom, like I said, he never told his mom was a six foot black kid and played basketball for, for the college. So he decided to bring his dad, his dad to the gym. And we was up there playing basketball, just me and him. The next thing you know, his dad walks in the gym, you know, country guy, cowboy hat, boots, Wranglers, and you know, the, the whole bullshit. <laughs> so, so, you know, so, you know, I'm like, oh, well, we really, we really in the country now, huh? Because, you know, I'm like, he's like, you know, dirty because of working, whatever. So. Well, you know where he learned that N-word from. I think he just heard it on the news or he just, you know, whatever. But, um, so he walks in and he grabs my hands and Dad, 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 let me introduce you to my friend. He said, and the dad said, where's he at? That's what, that's what he said, where's he at? He said, he said, right here. This guy, he said, this your friend? He said, yeah, I, I thought he was, a, and he actually said it out loud. He said, I thought he was like 11 or 12 years old. He said, no, he plays college ball here. I said, yeah, great. And then, you know, living in the tension, like I told you, but, you know, you know racial tension in the projects, going to this little town that was more racist than anything. I mean, there's no blacks live there. And he just blurted this comment out. He said, oh, my God, Dad, 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 you know what? I invited him to dinner. I'm like, no, you didn't. <laughs> no, you didn't. You know, I'm like, don't say that, man. It's, and his dad just looked at me like I was fucking, you know, like, wait, dude, I didn't prove that. He said, yeah, can he come to dinner? Can he come to dinner? And his dad said, yeah, he come to dinner. So, so you transformed the father, too. No, no. I mean, he just, just accepted because his kid. How so, was that dinner? No, and we went to the, we went to the house. And, dude, I, I, you know, this nice country house. They have a nice country house, all these cars and trucks, pickup trucks and stuff like that. So I go to the house, and he runs in the house. Mom, mom, mom. And he's my friend. It's my friend. So she's in the back, right? Whatever doing, she's doing in the bedroom or whatever the fuck she was doing. And she, he said, "Oh, oh yeah, oh where's he at? Where's he at?" And I like, <laughs> he said, "There he is, right there." And I'm in the living room, and he said, "That's it." She actually stood there and stared at me. Didn't even say hi. How you doing? What's your name? Just shit that stared at me. Then went back in the bedroom, and her husband walked right behind her because she just stared at me like I'm just blank stare, like. And she just turned around and went back in the bedroom. Huh? <laughs> and the husband went back in, and all I could hear her is crying. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, what? Oh my God. You know, I'm thinking they're kidnapping me, you know? <laughs> they're going to, you know, fuck my ass up or, you know, shoot me or something because I'm so used to it, right? But I'm like, I'm in Oklahoma, don't know anybody. I'm just by myself out of here. So she comes back out. She said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Just, I just got really emotional because of my son. I was like, all right, great, you know? So we eat dinner, and then he blurts out this other comment. Hey, mom, dad, can you spend the night? I'm like, oh, my God, kid, kid, stop, stop, stop. I'm like, dude, stop, no, don't do that, man. And, and she is like, she, she started tripping. She's like, no, I don't think that's a good idea. You know, you know I don't think that's a good idea, you know, because, you know, and I'm just, I'm just pretty much thinking what she's thinking. She's thinking I'm going to sit here and kill her son or something like that. <laughs> And she said, she said, no, that's not a good idea. No, no, no. You just need to, you need to go back to college and 
stay up there and just what do you got to do and stuff like that. She pretty much told me to go get the fuck out. <laughs> get the fuck out of here, pretty much. You know, because we don't want your cut, your, your kind in here. But I understood what she was talking about. I understood where she was coming from because I'm six foot eight black. She don't know me. This kid just knew me for a week. You know, dad don't know me. And he wants me to spend the night. And the mom said, you know what? Okay. He can spend the night one night. Just one night. That's it. No more. Just one night. And I and he said, yeah, 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 yeah. The kid's just running around the house, just going nuts, going nuts. Oh my God, yeah. Oh my God. Wow, let's go play some basketball. So we go outside and play basketball on a concrete court outside the house right there. And when night came, about to go to bed. So the kid has has a bed like this, and he has, you know what a trolley bed is? Yeah, it's the trundle bed. The trundle bed. It's called. underneath the bed. That's what I'm trying to know about that shit. Yeah. And so it's like, it pulls out like this, right? So I said, all right, dude, so I'm going to sleep. I thought I'd sleep in the other room or maybe in the, in the den or something like that. Maybe in the den. No. The kid grabs me at the den and said, come here, you're going to sleep right here. I'm like, right where? Right here? He said, you're going to sleep right here. I'm like, all right, great. So I said, I agreed to it. So, so we lay down, and this kid just talking my head off till like one o'clock in the morning, right? <laughs> and I'm like, dude, it's time to go to sleep, man. It's just, you know, we gotta get up in the room and go to, go to camp or whatever. So his mother comes in, you know, I love you, Brian. Kiss him on the, on the forehead, whatever, and, and slams the door, right? And this morning, I wake up, and I'm, I, I looked up. I thought this kid went to school, you know, he loved us something. I said, wait a minute, hold on, dude. Next thing you know, I turned like this, he's laying beside me. This is a true story, man. He's laying right beside me, I'm like, oh my God. And I'm like, I don't know what to do. The next thing you know, I should have figured this was gonna happen. Who walks in the door? Mom. Mom walks in the door and see her son right beside me. I mean, literally right beside me, almost hugged me. Hugging me, stuff like that. I'm looking up like, oh, this is not good, right? Because I, I don't know what to tell her. She just looks down like, and runs out the house. Runs out the house, like literally almost in the street. Screaming, you know, screaming, screaming, screaming. And, and I, I'm like, I'm going to fucking prison this time. I'm going to actually prison because they, they think I raped this kid. And, and, and the kid wakes up and say, Oh, dude, wow, wow, you know, just having, you know, just laughing and joking and stuff like that. And he heard his mom crying outside, and he gets up, runs outside, and grabs her. And all of a sudden, she's just sitting there holding him, holding him. And he said, Mom, what's wrong? What's wrong? What's wrong? You know, he, he said, he said, he didn't do anything to me, nothing. He did nothing to me. No, no, nothing, nothing, nothing. And he said, no, I just, I just laid down because I feel so comfortable being around him. And he had two brothers in the other room, older brothers, that was in college. So, but his brothers never loved him like, like he thought that I was his big, like his bigger brother, that I liked him. But his other brothers never gave him attention. So I just figured that out the next day when I stayed there again. And she said, um, the dad came home. He said, "Well, you want to do something for us?" I said, "Yeah, what is?" He said, "My son would like you to stay over a while." Uh, so I got great. So I go get my stuff out of dorms. And to make it long story short, long story short, that day I stayed there, I stayed there for three straight years. You stayed there for three years while you were at Southeastern Oklahoma didn't, State. Then leave. I didn't know the fact that that kid, the week, I, I found this out probably a year later, that kid, the reason why he was so upset and so tensed up when the first day at camp, 
he was out on a hunting, you know, camping trip or whatever, and he was hunting, and he loaded, he, he was loading a gun, a rifle, right? And as he was load, as he was loading a gun, the gun, as he loaded like this, the gun, boom, went off and shot his best friend right here in the stomach. Ten-year-old kid. So he killed his best friend. This is like by accident. They told him. They told me the story a year later. It was his accident. He did like this. Boom! The gun went off and shot the kid in the stomach. And the kid, and the kid, when they took the kid to the hospital, he stayed. Brian stayed there for the whole time, and the kid died in, in his arms and stuff like that. And you can imagine what a kid go through, especially during that ten years old. And wow, dude, how much so affected I was. And I, I didn't realize why, why he was so erratic back in the day and I knew then I knew then why he got erratic why he was so upset why he's so upset because he used to sleep with his mom and dad for six months after that accident happened because he was so scared he was so scared that he didn't want to be alone so he slept with his mom and dad every night in the middle and um, then the week before he went to a swimming camp and then he went to a University of Oklahoma swimming camp and uh, I didn't know this story either. they told me this so they were swimming. The next thing you know, Brian gets out the pool and said, hey, man, there's somebody down there. somebody down there in the pool. somebody down there in the pool. And the lifeguard didn't pay no attention. He said, really, somebody's down there drowning. And the next thing you know, he, he dies down there. All of a sudden, guess what? It was a black kid down there. A black kid, not a white kid, a black kid. All people, a black kid that's on the bottom of the pool. And he went down there. He went down there and actually go get the kid. And they, he, he brings him back up. He take him to the surface and resuscitate him and stuff like that, and he lived. He lived, so it's like, uh, uh, uh. And I said, I'm like, wow. And I put all those things together. I said, maybe that's the connection that we had because, wow, it was like weird connection how we became, like we actually became really close. I mean, every day we didn't leave each other's side. If you go buy a teacher and say, warm us on, he'll have warm malicious. You know, if you go buy a pair of tennis shoes, he'll buy a pair of tennis shoes. Everything. I did, he did, and everything he did, I did. So it's like whatever he wants to go to the arcades, I'd be the six foot black guy, and, and I'd be the token black guy driving all the kids around, like Mr. Toy guy, you know? So I'd drive around all these kids and stuff like that. But uh, it, was, it was a great experience because of that right there got me to the NBA, just being with that family. Being with the family got you to the NBA. Yeah. Put that together for us. How do you make that connection? Well, I think the fact of it is that it was more like um, they actually cared about each other. And I never saw that. I never saw that before because when I stayed there for a year, and the little kids said, well, just to let you know, when my dad gets pissed off and mad, he will take us in the truck and drive three miles that way. I'm like, why three miles? He said, you'll find out when you go that three miles that way and three miles this way. All right, great. So I did something wrong. I did something, did something wrong, he said. Uh, he said. He said, let's go take a ride in the truck. I'm like, oh, God, this is what he's talking about. <laughs> so his father disciplined you even though you were 23 years old. So you go with a ride with the father in the truck. What happens? I'm riding the father, and he's just bitching and cussing at me like a father, like a father figure, right? I mean, that bitch is, just, is, is telling me what's right and wrong. He said, I know in your, in your neighborhood that you never had no 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 parenting guys i know that you know stuff like that but here we teach our kids right and wrong and i just like all of a sudden come back i'm all emotional and shit. little kid come to me and said 
What do you think? <laughs> I was like, what do you think? <laughs> what do you think? He said, yeah, he got you too, huh? I was like, yeah. I said, I see what you mean. Um, and every time we got into trouble, and I'm 23 now, and I'm like, he'll take us ride in the truck, you know, give us a little little picture of what we should do and what we should not do. So, And uh, he taught me the way to, to live life. Work hard, and when you work hard, good things come to you. And every day, we'll get up at 5.30 in the morning, go get the cows, go get the tractor, go get the hay, go do this. I mean, every day, every day. I mean, every day before you go to school. In the summertime, it's hot out there, 100 degrees, and you plow on the fields, you um, done hay. I mean, oh my God, 12 hours a day, man. And that right there, that, that actually stuck to me for a long time because I said, wow, this is awesome, this is awesome. So that, that, I just transcended that to my basketball player because I played so hard, and I worked so hard, but to get in there, all right, so that's amazing. You're kicking ass in college. Tell me the best college basketball player you ever played against and what your experiences were with that person. Yeah, his name was Dennis Robin. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just being honest with you. Best player I played against in college. I played against myself pretty much because my coaches used to just work me of all the players. I mean, you heard the story back in the of all the players, he worked me the hardest. Oh my God, yeah, I was the hardest. But you know, but I loved it though. I was just telling my sons this. Sometimes they get upset when the coach keeps taking them aside, taking them aside. I said, "You should be grateful that they're taking." But they tick on me more than anybody else. No, that means that you're special. Yeah, I actually do. I mean, they, they do it today. They even do. It. I see my son. You know, he's like my son's like six eight at 14, 14 years old. Six eight and. Uh, I mean, 15, 15, now you're, uh, he's 6'8", so I mean, they, I mean, every game, I'm like, they keep calling his name, keep calling his name, DJ, DJ, I'm like, oh my God. And I hear all the parents talking, DJ, DJ, why do you gotta do this? I'm like, oh. And I see why, because they know, he, my son's very good at 6 eight. he's very good. I'm surprised, you know, that I won't take him to China to play basketball this summer. You know, because he's that good at 15. Should send him the Mike Krzyzewski's basketball game. <laughs> well, I should. Yeah, but, uh, yeah, but that, you know, they're not, trying, they're not trying to get on you. They're just trying to push you, push you, because they know that something that, that's there. They know something that's there. That's right. Okay, so taking on that thought, in college, you finally realize you got something there. You finally realize, hey, there's a chance I believe I can play professional basketball. Tell me the game or or the day it happened when you believed you could be a professional basketball player? It wasn't no game or nothing. It was the fact that my coaches, my coaches just always just say, dude, you can go to the NBA. You can go to the NBA. You'll be the first player in the school history to go to the NBA. I said, all right, great, I hope so, I hope so, I hope so. And then I was three years All-American, and they were saying, I go in a, in a rec room in the gym, I play pool or whatever, and I hear my name, oh, Dennis Rahman, first team All-American. And people were running, running in the cafeteria, first team All-American. I said, what is, what is that? I didn't know what that was. And then I thought that was like, you know, like I, like I got a trophy or something. You know, so they said, no, dude, you first team All-American. That means you're one of the best players in the world. I mean, in, in the United States. I said, all right, great. The next year come, first team All-American. Oh, my God. Okay, great. I'm, I'm most valuable player in NIA. I was like, okay, great, cool. Then I started to get the wind of it now, my second year into the college. I started getting, wait a minute. I'm feeling that I can actually play in the NBA. And my coaches always say, I told you you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. When so, do the agents start coming by and when do the professional team scouts come by and say, we'd like to sit down with you? What year? Is that your senior year? Senior year, like in 
April of 86. And How many agents courted you? Well, I think the fact that they didn't really know me as a player because they knew all the other players, you know, like you can say Duke and all the, all the big all the big universities around the world. So I was playing against those guys now. So they, they um, invited me to go to these, these big tournaments around. Like, it's like, more like the mini combines they have now. Yeah. It's more like that. And no one knew me, so I, I went to one in Portsmouth, Virginia. Yeah. It was, it was probably the biggest one they had back then. And it was, every player in the world was there. So I went there and I think I averaged 20 and 18 rebounds a game. Well, I guess all these other guys, that's when agents started to come up to me and said, can I talk to you? And I, I don't know what, you know, I'm so stupid. I don't know. I said, yeah, go ahead. So I won the most valuable player in that tournament out of all those guys. Like out of 300 some guys, I won the most valuable player. Then we go to Hawaii. We go to Hawaii. I get invited to Hawaii camp. They still got it though. And I went to, I actually got most valuable player there. I was averaging 20 some points, 16, 17 rebounds a game. And um, then we go to the, the biggest camp, that's Chicago. The biggest camp they have now, even still today, they got from Chicago. And I got there, I guess I was nervous or whatever. I got pneumonia. I had pneumonia, I couldn't, I couldn't function. And, and I've always had asthma, I always had, had asthma. So I, I try to use the inhaler. Didn't worry, but they said, you got a fever, you got pneumonia. So I, I played anyway. I played anyway, I was like eight points and seven rebounds and stuff like that. So then that's when my draft stock went down. That's when the Detroit Pistons gonna drop me at number 11. Number 11 in the draft. That went from 11 to 25th. And for me, I think that was another blessing in this guys. Thank God, right? You know, after all, I could've went to Milwaukee, Bucks and whatever, and it was like a whole different story, but Detroit picked me, and uh, that was it. Got it. Awesome. And so talk about your early influences and what happened when you arrive at a professional basketball camp and you're faced across from all the locker room with all these people that you saw on television. How is it as an NBA rookie coming in to a situation like that with a coach who's one of the greatest coaches of all time? Oh, yeah. I was more at odd at anything because I couldn't believe it. I actually left. Texas and left Oklahoma. I never been anywhere. I mean, I never been outside Texas. You know, it's like people say, "Well, we never, we never experienced going to Hawaii. We never going to LA. We never seen a beach." It was like me more like going to see a big city, right? I'm like, wow. So Detroit was like, God, am I? You know, and I was, I was even like, I was nervous then. I got sick. I got sick again. I got pneumonia again when I went there because it was like I really, really sick. But uh, just to be in the first game, the first practice, man, it was intense. And I really didn't play that much. I think I played like seven, eight minutes a game the first year. But the coach loved me so much because I, I worked so hard. And I, I, you know, I ran up and down the court and did all those crazy things, you know, jumping, diving the stands, doing this, doing that. And the coach was like, wow, do you, do you always like this? I'm like, like what? He said, the way you run, the way you hustle, the way you do this, you always like this? I said, yep. I said, I don't know any other way to play. That's the only way to play, I play it like that, you know, because I, like I told you, it comes from, from, from living with those people. That's how the way they worked and how they did it, their livelihoods and stuff like that. So I learned it by working hard with them and uh, in, in college. So, and uh, I think he, that right there, just like more like history than Chuck Davis, they started taking a liking to me. So taking a liking to me. So. And it's because of your work ethic. Yep. Magic yeah. once told me that when he got to camp, 
I said, how did you figure out how to make an impact? He said, well, you're looking at all these great players, and the only way to make an impact is to over-deliver. So I would get there at 7 a.m., the coaches would roll in at 9, and they'd be like, why is this kid here? And after, like, seven practices where he showed up two hours early, they said to the whole team, look, why is Magic, he's a rookie, why is he coming in two hours early, and you guys are coming in when we're coming in? From now on, everybody's coming in at 7. And he said people didn't like him at first, but he felt like he had to change the work ethic and the culture because he wasn't going to be able to change them with his words. And so it's the same thing with you. Your work ethic got them working harder. No, no, no. I think my work ethic um, reassured them that, you know, they got a good they got a good uh, individual that, that want to go out there and play and win. And I think Isaiah, Joe Dumars, Bill Embiid, Nick Mahon, you know, everybody that's on the team, Vinny Johnson, they looked at me and said, man, you will have a nice career, but it's the way you play, you play hard. You play hard, and you, and you just you don't think about the game. You play it. You play the game, and it's a while. And Isaiah took it like it to me too. He said, "You you gonna like being here because we gonna we gonna go we gonna win championships here." I said, "Okay." So I I, knew, I was more like I was too green at the time. I didn't know anything but Oklahoma or Texas and stuff like that. Everybody supposed to love each other, do all the stuff like that. So, and every game I was playing more and more with the team because it would. Um, my activities were. Now, what was it like? Here's a guy who literally has an MVP trophy on a curb. He has nothing. And then you get the contract from Detroit. And even though you were a second-round draft pick, right. you still make significant money. This is the first time you have money in a bank account. How do you react to that? Are you the kind of guy who goes crazy and spends everything? Or are you the kind of guy who just pretends like he has nothing? <laughs> No, it wasn't like that. It was way not like that. So my first three years, I didn't make anything. It was like a hundred and ten thousand. But a hundred and ten. You just said you got a card with twenty dollars in it. It was like you won the lottery. Now you have a hundred and ten thousand. It's a different. You know, it's a difference. So it's a way different thing. But even then, when I had this contract, I had to still work in the summertime. So it wasn't enough, enough money to live in NBA style. You had to work in the summertime. Absolutely. Doing what? Just odd things. You know, going to you know, be in a basketball camps, you know, just making money to live. I didn't even have a place and I had a little small apartment. And then I had to go back home and live with my mother, even though, you know, I'm an NBA, I still live with my mother then. Did you and send I, your mother money then when you? No. Got it. Oh, uh, you, you, you had to take care of yourself first, right? Yeah. You know, I was, I was just, barely, just barely getting by, you know? So, you know, after taxes, and you And that's know, the most amazing thing is that when you start making money, you don't have anything, and you start making six figures, and you're thinking, "Hey, I made, oh, I still don't have any money." I say I don't money. It was like you know, you, after tax, you get like sixty thousand. I hope you don't mind me asking this, but when you were in high school, you weren't really that great with the ladies. Oh, no, I know that, but that means. But when you got I, into the NBA, what changed from an introvert to an extrovert? It was all good, man. I mean, once you become established as far as money was, a lot of girls will come out, no matter what you look like or how you how you do it. I mean. It's just a natural instinct for people to, to want to be around money, especially athletes. But what was the thing that flipped the switch from shy, reserved guy to guy who had an outgoing, wonderful, exuberant personality and so much outward love and a guy who women really love being around? What happened? It was, it was like that. I mean, I just think that, you know, once you... People start to see what type of player you are because you go like to LA, the Clippers. I mean, the stadiums like that, and, and women are sort of like, well, that guy's he's, he's a nice body. He has a, he's a nice this, he has a nice that. He got tones and stuff like that. 
And I never really went into the girls until like, I mean, like, like that, until like third year in the league, you know, because I used to go out with John Sally a lot, and he was all into girls. And I would just, just go hang out with him, and then girls would come around, and, you know, so. Were you and Sally hang out all the time? All the time. For the first, I think the first three years we hung out. I mean, all the time during the season, we would go out to eat, and uh, we, you know, we played on the same team, and. And like I said, it was it was a good experience for me that first three years in Detroit. Were you competitive with him on the court? Like when he saw you getting minutes, was it like that's minutes coming out of my? No, he didn't. When we first got drafted, we went to do the press conference in Detroit. They asked me, so what do you think? What do you think about being drafted by Detroit Pistons 25th? I said, I don't know what they was thinking about because I'm way better than him. That's the first thing that came out of my mouth. <laughs> that's the first thing that came out of my mouth right there. And John, he said, man, that's all right. Got it. Speed round. I'm going to say something. First thing that comes to your mind. It could be anything, one word, anything. Right. Jordan. Great. Larry Bird. <laughs> Unique. Magic. Magic. Madonna. Great. Phil Jackson. Father. Chuck Daly. Father figure. Scotty Pippen. Unique. Charles Barkley. Fat. <laughs> and last one, since you were on The Celebrity Apprentice, oh, yeah. Donald Trump. I say genius. Your proudest professional moment in basketball? Playing the NBA. That's my proudest moment, just playing the NBA. And people thought you couldn't make it. And, uh, and persevering in the NBA. After all these years, you know, starting as a rookie, playing only seven minutes to winning championships in three years. That was my proudest moment. It's been the NBA. God, your biggest disappointment in your career and how you used it to fuel yourself to get to the next level. Well, my biggest disappointment, that's too easy. My biggest disappointment was when my wife at the time took my child, took my cars, burned my clothes, stuff like that. Biggest disappointment is she drove across country with my child. And uh, that was my biggest disappointment. But I think that right, that right there actually fueled my fire. So that was my, big, my biggest disappointment. But that right there actually boosted my uh, mentality. Now I started to realize how life was and how life is, how bad it is, especially when making it being in the pros and being successful, how it can turn from good to ugly real quick and still trying to focus on playing basketball at the same time. So that really right there actually built me up mentally. So that was my, my good and the bad story right there. And what advice would you have for the young person who's sitting on a curb somewhere in the projects with an award they got or an award they didn't get and what they can do to figure out a way to get to the next level and have the kind of career that you've had? You've got a lot of outlets right now. You've got a lot of outlets for kids to do a lot of things now. You got the combines, you got the Nike tour, you got the Adidas tour, you got everything in the world to put you in on that level. And now you'll know if you can play basketball or not unless once you go play against the greatest players on the planet. You go like you're 15 years old, you go play with the best 15, 16, 17 year old kids around the world. And you'll know when you come back, say, wow, I can actually play with these guys. And that right there would just increase your mind frame and say, wow, if I could just keep this up, keep this up, keep this up, maybe I will make the NBA. A lot of players don't make the NBA every year. A lot of players don't because it's only maybe 60, 70 players a year make it out of thousands and thousands and thousands of players around the world. 
So you gotta just you gotta look at your vision and saying, well, if I can make if I can't make the NBA, maybe I can make the D League, maybe I can go make the European League, maybe I can make this league. But as long as you know that you can actually play in a league that has maybe from C to A, hey, you made it. To me, you made it. Awesome. Dennis Rodman, this has been genius. You've been amazing. I only thought that I would have like a few minutes with you. You gave me everything. You gave me so much time, and I'm so grateful. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Cool, brother. Next time. Thank you. Next time. All right. Okay, as promised, I'm going to scroll through the list of people who purchased the documentary I Killed JFK. It's an amazing story about the only man in history who has admitted to killing JFK. It's an incredible documentary, and you can get it at the website ikilledjfk.com. You can see the trailer, and it's truly incredible. And so I'm going to scroll through now randomly the people who purchased the documentary this week, and one of these people will be a lucky winner, and they'll get to attend a podcast live with one of my guests, meet them, shake their hand, ask them a few questions, or else if they're out of town, out of state, or out of the country, we'll Skype them in or FaceTime them or anything like that so they can be there. Okay, let's do it. Landing on Ginny Ryan from Brooksville, Florida. Congratulations, Ginny. Also, I figure... I might as well give away the same thing to somebody who sent me a message, a review on the iTunes comment review section as well. Why not? So let me look here randomly and pick somebody. All right, landing on Kim B. 80. Title is Great Guest and Fascinating Interviews, Five Stars. Thank you so much. It reads, I never have written a review before but I felt like I had to make an exception for industry standard with Barry Katz. It is fantastic. I love Barry's intros. He has so many stories that are truly riveting if you're at all interested in how TV movies work and get made and sometimes don't work and don't get made. Not necessarily actors, but the people in the ivory towers that make the actual decisions. It's just fascinating. Barry is a deep thinker and has some great quotes that are worth pondering. I truly recommend this podcast for anyone with a curiosity about the entertainment business. Well, congratulations, Kim B. 80. I really appreciate it. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. They say it's the glory I'll scream your name Put you on shoulders Walk you to fame You'll get all the money Drive that fancy car All the people love you Cause you're going far Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave
Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes, which will be available for download every Monday, or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrycats.com. Before you leave, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.